We are looking at what it means to be rooted into Christ. And we're using an ancient letter to guide us there because what we've discovered is those that originally received this letter struggle with the same things that we struggle with, the same challenges that we struggle with, because they were wrestling with what is forming them. And we're asking the same question. I'll start off by telling you that uh, story that I heard growing up from my mom and dad. My dad uh, was from Lexington, Kentucky. And so therefore, if you from anywhere in the state of Kentucky, you root for one of two teams. Um, and he was a University of Kentucky Wildcat fan, a diehard. He comes in the military uh, to Air uh, to Shepherd Air Force Base in Wichita Falls. He meets my mom. They fall in love. They get married. And he converts her into a Wildcat fan as well. And one day they're watching. They're in Wichita Falls. And they're watching a game. And now you got to remember, we didn't always get the scores updated on our phones in real time. And so they're watching a game that's being broadcast in the local area. And Kentucky, in this particular game, through the first half and into the third quarter, is losing. And they're not doing very well. They've got friends over, and this is a young couple's kind of gathering that they're having, and they've got the snacks and the drinks, and they're enjoying themselves. Mom gets up, goes in the kitchen, and she takes a phone call. Once again, this is when the phone was actually attached to the wall. So she's in the kitchen taking the phone call, and she finds out from some some friends who live in another state that this game is actually tape delayed, but they didn't know it. And Kentucky wins the game. So my mom gets done with the phone call, hangs up, walks back in the room and says, does anybody want to put a bet on the outcome <laughs> of the game? Nobody was willing, because she was willing to say, I will put money that the Kentucky Wildcats pull out this game, and they were losing considerably at that time. Nobody took her up on that. Everybody else was frustrated. Everybody else was annoyed. They were despondent at how their Wildcats were playing. There's something about knowing the outcome and knowing the victory is in hand that changes how you experience the game, right? There's something, but when you understand that there is a victory that's going to be had, I don't care how it looks right now, but there is a victory coming, it changes the way you approach the game, or in this case, the way you approach life. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to write to this church, and he's going to affirm them in the victory, and says, if you want to be devoted to following Christ, understand that the victory has been decided already. Live like it. So if you have your scripture journals, and I really encourage this, I love hearing from so many that, that are enjoying the scripture journals, or if you've got a Bible, as many of our students have their scripture Bibles, their journal Bibles, I mean, or you want to pull it up on the app, we'll be in Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to pick up, I told you last week as we looked at um, the message from last week, that last week and this week go hand in hand 
because Paul carries a thought from last week right into this week. And so we're actually going to pick up mid-paragraph. So chapter 2, verse 11 is mid-paragraph. And what I want to do is I want to read this, and I want to read it to the end of the chapter. And so it's a little bit lengthier reading. But as we read, I encourage you to have out a pen, a pencil, a highlighter, whatever you use to write in your Bible with. And I want you to circle and make note of anything that jumps out at you, especially as it pertains to the victory that is in Jesus. Here's God's word for us this morning. Verse 11. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, through its joints and ligaments grows, with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why... As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. In a promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I want to quickly give us the takeaways, I believe, from this. But let me deal with that second paragraph first. Because Paul's building a consistent argument. What Paul starts addressing in the second paragraph is he is outlining all the different plans, all the different schemes, all the different philosophies by which people try to attempt to come into a victorious life, come into a right life, a successful life. And he says that we all have a sin problem. And what will you do about your sin problem? And then in that second paragraph, he outlines what the Colossian church, the people that were worshiping there, all the different philosophies and strategies that they're being fed to deal with their sin problem. And if you look through there, for some of it, it says you've got to have an incredible experience. And it talks about this worship of angels and seeing visions. And if you had the right visions, now you could be, possibly might be, on the right track. It also talks about asceticism. And if you start denying yourself, and you start living this really aesthetic life 
where you're just in denial and if it's rough and you make it difficult for yourself and it's all about, catch this word, self-discipline, then maybe, just maybe, you can address your sin problem. Or maybe it's the right diet. Don't eat this. Eat this, not that. Don't touch this. Avoid that. And the truth is, each of these plans are still trying to work out today, aren't they? Some of you have engaged in some of these. You've worked very, very hard. You thought, if I can just have enough willpower and self-discipline, I can get on the right track. I can make this work. The only problem with self-discipline is it still has self involved in it. And it makes you the one that has to wage the battle. Notice how Paul ends this. Look at the very last, uh, the very last verse, 23. These have indeed, he's talking about all these other plans, all these other approaches. These have the appearance of wisdom. You can go find lots of YouTube channels about them. You can find all kinds of testimonies about them. They have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But he finishes with this. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Ultimately, there's no power there. So I want you to look at the most striking verse in this whole two paragraphs. And what Paul says at the very end of the very first paragraph, in verse 15, he says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That is Paul's point. There is a triumph. There is a victory. It has been decided And he is using an imagery that they would have understood. The imagery is that of a general that has conquered an area. And as he comes marching in back home, he leads this procession. And he's at the front of the procession because victory has been won. And he is in his finest robes, his best armor, on his best chariot and horse. And he leads. And behind them are his elite troops. And then his strike force troops. And then as you go down, there's a message that said that the victory is complete. And that's what Paul's telling. And what Paul wants this church to be rooted in and what he wants us to be rooted in is to be rooted deeply in the idea that Jesus has won the victory. Jesus is triumphant. And if you understand that Jesus has won the victory, it changes the way you see the game. You do not watch in the third quarter with fear and trembling because you don't know how it comes out. So I'm going to give you three things that Paul outlines for us here that claims the victory. The first one, first one's found in verse 13. Verse 13 says, says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. 
the first thing that I want you to understand that Jesus of victory does is the, G- the victory of Jesus does this. It denies death the last word. Look what he says. He says, you have been made alive. Not you will be made alive someday. You have been made alive. There is something about what Jesus did when he went to the cross and then he walked out of the tomb alive again. He defeated death. Not just death someday, but death right now. And the problem is, because we don't understand the victory or we lose sight of it, we still like to live in our deadness. And he says, you have been made alive. I've said this before. The gospel message is not so that sick people can get slightly better. It's so dead people can come alive. That's what the gospel is. And the struggle for us is we keep living as if we're in the dead world. And what Jesus comes in and does with his resurrection is he steals the last word from death. But we still think it has power. We still think it has dominion over us. Notice all, every time that Jesus encounters death in the Gospels, he attends a funeral. He speaks some words. The dead person comes back to life and funeral is over. That's what he's doing in your life and in mine. I love the story that we spoke a lot last week about Frank Peretti. He tells a story about a family on a taking a summer family vacation and they're driving. It's a cool day, so they got the windows down. They're driving, and a bee comes into the car. And his daughter was significantly allergic to bee stings, and so she begins to become terrified. And so what the father does is he reaches out quickly and he actually grabs the bee and he squeezes and then he opens his hand and releases the bee. And the daughter's confused and she's wondering again, Dad, why would you do that? The bee can still sting. And he says, no, no, no. And the father reveals his hand to the daughter and shows that the stinger is embedded deep in his palm. And he says, the bee has lost its sting. And Paul, in his letters, affirms that death has lost its sting. It still buzzes around, but it's no threat. And so the victory of Jesus denies death the last word, and what Paul wants to do is now live alive. Don't live in your deadness anymore. I love the story found in John chapter 11 where Jesus goes to the tomb of a loved, beloved friend named Lazarus. And he's, he's been called there by, his grieving, by the Lazarus' grieving sisters. And he gathers around that tomb and they're wailing, saying, Why didn't you show up earlier? And there's a moment where he asks him to move the rock away. And they actually protest because he's been in the, in the tomb long enough where he'd be decaying. And the stench of death, one more proof that death has the final say would become just emanating out of the tomb, and he asks for the rock to be rolled away. And then he speaks into the tomb, says, Lazarus, come out. And the once dead body of Lazarus begins to walk again. 
and shuffles its way out. And I say shuffles because it was still wrapped up in the grave clothes because the very next thing that Jesus says is take the grave clothes off of him. Now, he says that because there's no place for grave clothes among the living. And too many of us were still wrapped up in the grave clothes. We've experienced this new life through baptism, yet we're still wearing the grave clothes of our old thinking, of our old addictions, of our old bitterness, of our old habits, of our old defeatedness. Paul says the victory has already been won. You no longer need to live as one who's dead because death no longer has the final word. And so, for you, what I would say is a way of hope and a victory. If Jesus, if God can reach into the tomb and bring life to the dead body of Jesus, what can he do in your marriage that's struggling? If he can reach into the tomb and bring the dead body of Jesus to life, what can he do with your past that you're so ashamed of? If he can reach into the body, into the tomb and resurrect the dead body of Jesus, what can he do with your addictions that you are so convinced have you chained? What can he do with your identity? And how can he revive and resurrect that? Second thing that Paul does, look in verse 14. By canceling, once again, this is the cross that's at work and what Jesus did on the cross. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Paul uses a very specific imagery here. And what he wants us to understand is that there's a picture, word picture that he's using here. And we lose a little bit because we don't understand the imagery that he's using. Because all their writing was on parchment. Or was on a kind of vellum, an animal skin. And they would use a certain kind of ink, but their inks weren't like our inks. Our inks has a certain level of acid in them so that the ink actually grips to the paper. It actually adheres to it. There's kind of a bite to it there. Well, their inks lack that. So you could actually take these documents, and paper was not near as plentiful as it is now, and so you would want to reuse it if you could, and you could actually take a certain cloth and cleaner and wipe it clean so that record no longer existed. He's saying when he says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, that is being wiped clean. The way that we would say this now today is that Jesus' victory deletes your sin debt. And not just a delete where some computer savvy person can get back in there and find the corrupted files. It is wiped clean, never to be found again. I loved how one guy put it that I was listening to said, said, so many of us that are in Christ, we are walking around like heaven still has a rap sheet on us. There is no record of your sin. There is no accounting of it for those 
who are under the victory of Jesus. If Jesus' victory is not complete enough to wipe out your sin debt, then the cross was a waste of time. And what Jesus does is he comes to the cross and he steps in your place and the punishment that was rightfully yours. Because understand, God is a just God and there will be a payment somehow. Jesus steps in. Your sin will be paid for some way. Jesus steps in. If you come under that victory, if not... You're claiming that you can pay the debt. But for those in Christ, the debt is deleted. It is wiped clean. There is not a record or a memory of it. You may remember it, but God doesn't. Third thing is this. The last verse of the first paragraph, 15. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He put them to open shame. He's going back to that imagery. Once again, the general is at the front. The conquering commander is leading these forces in. And then come all the, the conquering forces. And they are strong and healthy and victorious and walking proud, somewhere near the end of the line, and this would have been very familiar to anybody that was reading this message, the conquered soldiers would be shackled and tied together. And they wouldn't have been cleaned up. They would have been bloodied and bruised and dirty because this job is to show them in their shame. And they would be following behind the conquerors. And the message was, these that were a threat are no longer a threat. It was, it was a viral marketing at its best. The message is, those that you worried about, these armies that you thought you had to fear, no fear. They're defeated. What Jesus' victory does is it displays the lies and the weakness of the enemy. There's a genius behind what God did on the cross. The cross, in every estimation, should represent defeat and shame and guilt and embarrassment. That's all that anybody ever understood about the cross. And so when the early Christians came along and said, we serve a crucified Messiah, everybody else laughed and said, you're crazy. You serve a crucified Messiah, do you? You understand how crucifixions turn out, right? It was the ultimate sign of defeat, yet God in his power and his brilliance, he turns it on its head, and what is supposed to be the moment of greatest defeat for God becomes the greatest victory and exposes the weakness and the lies of all the enemy. I mean, that's, that's what it says. Look what it says. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He exposes the enemy as having no power. We live with this idea that Satan 
has a throne in hell. There is no throne in hell. It's nowhere in your Bible. Jesus is Lord of all. Satan has been allowed like a bee to buzz around for a little while. But the triumph and the victory of Jesus exposes it. And what you need to understand is everything that you face from the enemy now is a falsehood, it's a lie, it's an illusion. I, I, I'm not suggesting that it doesn't impact you well, strongly. But what Satan is going to attempt to do, and you know this because you've experienced this already, is at some point he's going to come alongside you, and in a moment he's going to remind you of something of your past. He's going to bring that sin back to you. He's going to bring that moment of brokenness and bitterness back into your mind. And he's going to try to convince you, you're not worthy of this. And the truth is, you're not worthy. But the victory of Jesus is so complete, so triumphant, that it erases that and exposes it for the light is, and your hope was never supposed to be found in your record, in your ability, in your, I can keep it all between the lines through life. But was always found in what Jesus did on the cross. He's the one that paid the debt. He's the one that bore the burden. He's the one that went to the grave, and he's the one that walked out again, never to experience death again. And what the cross does, and what the victory of Jesus does, is it displays all that, and you no longer have to listen to the lies of the enemy that says, you don't measure up, you're not worthy. Do you remember when? Remember last week? Remember last year? Remember that first marriage? Remember, remember, remember. Because you think it disqualifies you and the victory of Jesus says, no, it is the only thing that does qualify you. All the other plans fall under that you work harder at this yourself strategy. And Paul says that is of no use whatsoever. That's the victory of Jesus. The story is told about Napoleon Bonaparte. As he's on his conquest to rule the known world, his reach, and he was having incredible success, but he was frustrated by one force. And the story is told that he gathers with his generals in a tent, and he lays out a map of the world, and many of the places he conquered it, but England was marked with a red spot. And he bangs his fist on the table. And he says, if it wasn't for that red spot, I could have it all. I can only imagine that somewhere in the cosmos, there's a room where Satan gathers with his forces. And he's got a map of the universe laid out. And he bangs his fist on the table. And he says... If it wasn't for that red spot, I could have it all. And that red spot's Calvary. It's the cross of Jesus. Because he knows that because of that one moment, that one location, that one act, 
Everything else that he worked and thought he could control comes crumbling down in a moment. And the opportunity for you and I is to live with that truth that Jesus' victory conquers all. And the encouragement for us is to live like it. If you would, pray with me, please. Father, I pray that you would drive the victory of Jesus deep into our minds, into our hearts. Because, Father, I confess that so often we don't live like it. We live as if the outcome's still up in the air. So, Father, I pray for anyone that's hearing this message that is still listening to the lies of the enemy, still listening to, to the ones that would say, it's not enough, you've got to do more, you've got to work harder, you've got to, to experience something super special. Whatever it would be, Father, that they're just old gimmicks and old lies. Father, I pray that you would expose them for what they were. That you would remind us in tangible ways that our debt is gone. That you don't hold a record over our heads. And that you would help us to live alive. No more with the grave clothes. No more with the deadness. But alive in you. Father, I pray for anyone that this is a new message to. Maybe they haven't heard this yet. That you would use this today to break through that. And there would be a moment of clarity. And a moment of hope. That life can be different. Father, I pray the same power that you used. To bring the dead body of Jesus back into wondrous life. That that power would be at work in each of the lives and each of the hearts today. I ask all this in the name of the one that is victorious and triumphant. Amen.